Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Doing well today? It's good. I want to welcome you here in the room. Welcome everybody who's watching online. I have had my coffee this morning, so I'm good. I woke up a little groggy, but I'm getting there, so love coffee. All right, so we are going to do something a little different today, so it's a good thing I have had my coffee. Uh, We're going to dive a little deeper theologically this morning. Okay, we're going to talk about some things that are typically discussed at the seminary level with professors and students and theologians, and here's why I wanted to do that today, because as I thought about the whole Easter season... You know, each year we tell the stories, right? We have Palm Sunday, and then we've got the Passover, the Last Supper, the Garden of Gethsemane, the crucifixion, the resurrection. And I think for a lot of believers, they come in and like, yeah, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Yeah, I I know that stuff, right? And so today, what we're going to do is take a little bit deeper dive into the why questions. So I need you to put on your thinking cap this morning. Hopefully, you've had your coffee, and we're going to dive right in. And what I want to do with Easter coming up next Sunday... I thought we'd take a look at what you might call history's mystery. And we're going to tackle two major questions. The first one is this, why did Jesus have to die? And then next Sunday, why the resurrection? Now today's topic, why did Jesus have to die? It's actually deeper than you might think. But before we dive into this subject, what I want to do is I want to share a story with you that has stuck with me for many years. In his book, Travels in Alaska, John Muir tells this amazing story of the Thlinket and Sitka Indians. They were two Alaskan Indian tribes who readily accepted the preaching of the gospel way back in 1879. By the way, this is a true story. So listen to this. He writes, the Thlinket tribes gave a hearty welcome to Christian missionaries, and that was unusual in and of itself. In particular, they were quick to accept the doctrine of the atonement. Now, that word atonement is just a fancy word for being made right with God. If you break down at one meant atonement, it means being made one with God, getting back into a right relationship with God. It says they were quick to accept the doctrine of the atonement because they themselves practice it, even though to many of the civilized whites, it is an offensive stumbling block. He says, as an example of their own doctrine of atonement, They told Mr. Young and me that one evening, 20 or 30 years ago, there was a bitter war between their own and the Sitka tribe. They were both great fighters, pretty evenly matched, but after fighting all summer long in a squabbling kind of way, now undercover, now out in the open, watching for every chance to take a shot, none of the women dared to venture to the salmon streams or berry fields to procure their food for the winter. And so in the midst of that crisis, one of the sticking chiefs came out of his blockhouse fort into an open space midway between their fortified camps. And he shouted that he wished to speak to the leader of the Sitkas. When the Sitka chief appeared, he said, my people are hungry. They dare not go to the salmon streams or berry fields for winter supplies. And if this war goes on much longer, most of my people will die of hunger. We have fought long enough. Let us make peace. You brave Sitka warriors, go home, and we'll go home, and we'll all set out to dry salmon and berries before it is too late. 
Well, the Sitka chief replied, you may well say, let us stop fighting when you've had the best of us. You have killed 10 more of my tribe than we have killed of yours. So give us 10 sticking men to balance our blood account. Then and not till then will we make peace and go home. Very well, replied the sticking chief. You know my rank. You know that I am worth 10 common men and more. Take me and make peace. This noble offer was promptly accepted. The sticking chief stepped forward and was shot down inside of the fighting bands. Peace was thus established, and all made haste to their homes and ordinary work. That chief literally gave himself as a sacrifice for his people. He died that they might live. Therefore, when missionaries preached the doctrine of the atonement, explaining that when all mankind had gone astray and broken God's laws and deserved to die, God's son Jesus came forward and, like the sticking chief, offered himself as a sacrifice to heal the cause of God's wrath and set all the people of the world free. He says, when that gospel message was preached, it was readily accepted. Yes, your words are good, they said. The Son of God, the chief of chiefs, the maker of all the world, must be worth more than all mankind put together. Isn't that amazing? Talk about a parallel to the gospel story. And so those Lincoln tribes, they just readily accepted. They understood how Christ's blood could pay for the sins of all mankind. So let's begin this morning in God's Word over in Romans 3.25. Let's dive in. In this particular verse, Paul says this, God presented him, that would be Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Now in this passage right here, I would say we come face to face with the most important doctrine in all of Scripture. And it revolves around this question, why did Jesus have to die? You know, during that week following Palm Sunday, Jesus told his disciples repeatedly that he was going to die, but they just couldn't accept it. They could not wrap their minds around that. They were just kind of in denial. They're like, there's, there's just no way. Because in their minds, what was he supposed to do? On Palm Sunday, he was supposed to ride that donkey into Jerusalem and take over as king of Israel, as deliverer of his people. They couldn't grasp why he had to die. And that's what we're going to wrestle with today. You know, throughout history, great men and women have offered up compelling theories as to why Jesus had to die. And I would say that each of them have an element of truth, but none of them are complete in and of themselves. See, the death of Christ is so sophisticated, it's so complex, that you can't just wrap it up in one phrase. And so today, we're going to talk about four major theories of Christ's death, four major explanations for Christ's death. And there are some beyond these, but they're either not worth mentioning because they don't have biblical support, or they're just variations of these. So let's dive in here. And first of all, we're going to talk about what theologians call the ransom explanation. The ransom explanation, there are a couple key words here from the Bible, payment and ransom. And the main idea is that Jesus paid a ransom to set us free. You know, to have hostages released in a hostage situation, you've got to do something, right? You've got to pay a ransom. Well, the Bible says that Jesus paid a ransom to free us from bondage to sin. Now, the individual who originally proposed this theory was a man named Origen. It was back in the third century. And listen to what he wrote. He said, Satan is in a war with God, and he's taken all of humanity captive. We are his prisoners of war, his hostages. We were stolen from God, 
But Christ came to earth to exchange himself for us as a hostage. So Satan got Jesus as a payment, and he thought he had won, but little did he know the power of Jesus, that Jesus exploded through death and came back to life, and so the trick was on the devil. Okay, how about a few verses where we see this? First of all, Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man, that would be Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve, and here it is, and to give his life as a what? As a ransom for many. Jesus said, I came to give my life as a payment for you, as a ransom for you, so that you might be free from the bondage to sin and the law and death and the devil. Jesus set us free. That's the ransom idea. Ephesians 1.7 says this, in him we have redemption, another key term. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You know, some of you may remember the old blue or green stamp redemption centers. Remember those? You take all your stamps in and use those to redeem something. You pay something to get something back. Well, the Bible says that that's what Jesus did on the cross for us. Now, let me give you a word of caution here regarding this ransom theory. And it centers around the question, who did Jesus pay the ransom to? Now, for Origen and theologians like him, they say that the ransom was paid to the devil because the devil somehow held us as a hostage or hostages. Okay, that actually goes beyond the realm of Scripture. It doesn't say that specifically in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say specifically to whom the ransom was paid. So don't make it a ransom paid to the devil because if that's what happened, then Satan kind of got ripped off by God, right? Jesus was ransomed to the devil for us, but then Jesus broke free from bondage to sin, from hell, from death. He escaped that, right? And so I would suggest that it could be a ransom paid in another way. For example, if I said to you, she paid a great price in bearing that child, talking about labor pains, it would be absurd to say, well, to whom did she pay the price, right? That's immaterial. just means it was at great expense. So don't get too hung up in this theory about to whom the ransom was paid. It's kind of a word picture saying that our salvation cost a lot. You don't want to push the analogy here. So that's the first way that we can explain Christ's death. Second, there's what's called the moral influence explanation. The moral influence explanation. The key biblical words here would be love and example. Look for those words, love and example. So this theory basically says that Christ died as a demonstration of God's love and goodness towards us. That Jesus died to show us just how much God loves and cares for people. And here's a classic verse for you. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So this theory says he died to soften people's hearts. Because when you look at Jesus on that cross, you're moved to compassion. You want to say, Jesus, please forgive me. And so Jesus's death kind of set an example for us. It helps us to be more loving, to be more grateful. How about a few other passages that deal with this? The first one is over in Luke. You may remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross, there were two thieves, one on each side of him. And one of those thieves rejected him, was actually mocking him, making fun of him. But the other criminal came to know Jesus, became a believer right there on the cross. Check this out. Luke 23, 42. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. This is kind of amazing. Jesus never preached a sermon to this guy. For all we know, this was that man's first encounter with Christ. But just seeing him hanging there on the cross moved him to realize, here's a guy who's different than me. And he asked Jesus to save him right there at the cross. And then this is kind of cool. Right after that example, in Luke 23, 47, we read this. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Here's a guy who's just standing at the foot of the cross, right, looking up at Jesus and saying, there's something different about this guy right here. So this theory says that God sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross as an example of love. And that extreme love will then motivate us to change. And Jesus set an example for us as well. 1 Peter 2.21 says this about Jesus. To this you were called, talking to believers, talking to us as Christians, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So all throughout the Bible, we see that Jesus left an example for us. So there is a legitimate reason to believe that Christ's death on the cross was an example of God's love. But there are some weaknesses with this theory, especially if it's left all by itself. You see, first of all, Jesus' death was much more than an example. A lot of unbelievers will say, well, Jesus was a great example of sacrificial love, and that's it. Okay, that doesn't take sin seriously enough. And that can come across as, well, all we need is an example, and that's enough to help us do better. I don't know about you, but I need more than an example to help me do better. I know what I ought to do. It's the power to do it that I lack. And second, if Christ's death was just a demonstration of God's love for us, then God had already demonstrated his love to mankind all throughout the Old Testament in many, many ways. If all Jesus' death did was to show us God's love, he could have done it without the expense of his son dying on a cross for our sins. So does the cross show us God's love? Absolutely. Is Jesus an example for us to follow? Certainly. But does this theory just by itself satisfactorily explain the death of Christ? Not at all. It's just a portion. It's just a piece of the equation. Okay, let's keep moving. Next, we have what theologians call the victory explanation. This is sometimes called the military view. The key words here from the Bible are going to be power, destroy, and triumph. And this theory goes like this. It says history is a battleground, all of history. All of history is this battle between forces of good and forces of evil. And this theory is similar to the ransom theory, but it takes it even further than that. It basically says that Jesus, when he died on that cross, guaranteed the doom and defeat of Satan. Guaranteed it. Now, this is a view held by a lot of famous theologians. You've heard of Martin Luther. Okay, he held this view. Let's take a look at some scriptures here. Look at Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. This is about Jesus becoming a human being, becoming the God-man. So that by his death, he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So this passage is talking about that battle between the devil and the Lord. Jesus didn't just come to pay a ransom. He came to destroy the power of the devil and set people free. That's why Jesus came. And you know what? This is significant. I think Satan knows he's living on borrowed time. He knows his days are numbered. He's read the book of Revelation too. 
If you ever get uptight, I would encourage you, just read the book of Revelation. I mean, the main idea of this whole book is simply this. In the end, we win. We win. Amen? Amen. That's good news. Colossians 1, 13 to 14 backs this up. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So we've been transferred from one kingdom to another. Jesus defeated this enemy, Satan, and delivered believers from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Colossians 2, 13 to 15 says, God has made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with his regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Then it goes on to say, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Say, who are these powers and authorities? That's talking about spiritual beings right here. Satan and his legions of demons. And it says, Jesus made a public spectacle of them. Isn't that interesting? Do you know the early Christians actually laughed at death? They laughed at the devil. They thought Easter was one big joke on Satan because he thought he had won on Friday, but Sunday was a coming, right? Sunday was coming. You know, I got to thinking about that. Can you imagine being a Pharisee back in that day? Or how about this one? Imagine being one of those Pharisees who had a part in crucifying Jesus. And a couple days later, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, remember that guy you killed last weekend? He's alive. By the way, he wants to see you, right? He came back to life. If you think it was a shocker for his disciples, which it was, imagine how much it shocked his enemies including Satan. If you look over at John 19, 30, on the cross, Jesus' last words, it is finished. Boom, it's done. Notice he doesn't say, I'm finished, okay? Big difference there. He was not finished. It is finished. The battle had been won. Okay, that's the victory explanation. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. That's the victory explanation, that there was war between God and Satan, and God won at the cross. Right, now all that leads us to the last major theory of the atonement, why Jesus died. And about this theory right here, this is the most common explanation that you see all throughout the Bible. This is the number one primary reason for Christ's death. I would say that all the other reasons we've talked about this morning have some validity, but not if they don't include this one. It's the substitution explanation. And the biblical words here that are key are sacrifice and for us. Take a look back at Romans 3.25. It says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. This view is sometimes called the legal view, the judicial view of Christ's death. It's a courtroom concept. I bet it's the one you're most familiar with. See, God is a judge and we've all sinned. See, we've all broken the law. We all deserve to be punished. And according to the Bible, the punishment, the penalty of sin is, you know it, death. And so Jesus, he comes before the bar as our advocate and says, yes, they're all guilty. Yes, they deserve to be punished. But I will take the punishment for them. I will be the substitute. I will take their place. I will serve their term. The Bible says that's what Christ did for us. 
And it perfectly parallels my opening illustration of those Alaskan Indian tribes. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Jesus was the substitute for everyone else. People, Jesus was nailed to the cross, so you can stop nailing yourself to the cross. All right? Jesus was condemned, so you can stop condemning yourself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. There's that phrase, for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who deserves to die gets set free. And the one who does not deserve to die takes his place. People, every time in the Bible when you see that phrase, for us, that is this concept of substitution. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, I do want to give you a word of caution on this particular theory. Don't fall into the trap of thinking of God the Father as kind of being angry, and then Jesus the Son has to intervene. Some people teach this concept of substitutionary atonement in such a way that it would cause you to love Jesus but hate God the Father. I heard about a guy who was trying to illustrate this concept of substitutionary atonement, and he used a glass cup and a hammer. And the glass cup represented all of us as sinners, represented our sin, and the hammer represented God. And just as God is getting ready to strike us down in judgment, okay, that hammer's swinging down on that glass cup, Jesus, represented by a a big hard pot, kind of jumps over us and covers us up. And so the full force of that hammer just bangs that pot, right? The pot gets all banged up. Jesus is wounded, but we're still okay. Now, there's certainly the concept of substitution there, but I think if you take it to its logical conclusion, it kind of makes God the Father out to be this vengeful, wrathful individual. And Jesus is somehow trying to convince the Father not to hurt us. No, 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 no. First of all, you got to realize Jesus is God, okay? Jesus is God. There's no division in the Godhead. So it's not like God's saying, okay, I'm going to beat him up, and then a third party has to jump in and intervene. No, it's more like God is saying, somebody has to pay the price for their sins. So I will. I will do it. All right, so there you have the four primary theories of the atonement. Jesus set us free. He paid the ransom. Jesus' death on the cross was a demonstration of God's love. Jesus crushed Satan, won the war at the cross, the victory explanation. And then the dominant theme of the atonement, the substitution explanation. Jesus was our substitute. He took our place. All right. As you know, every time I preach, I always like to give a practical application. What can we do? What should be our response? Now that we know all that Jesus has done for us on the cross, now that we understand all the fine nuances, what should be our response? Let me give you three things as we leave here. First of all, I would suggest to you that we ought to hate sin. You know, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, this is God speaking, Be holy because I am holy. People, God wants us to live holy lives, morally pure lives, to walk in the Spirit and not to give in to sin. You say, well, why should we hate sin? Because of what sin does. Sin hurts people. 
Sin hurts you. Sin hurts the people around you. If you want to know how bad sin is, just look to the cross. Look at what it did to Jesus. And unfortunately, I was thinking about this. We live in a culture that, that kind of laughs at sin. In fact, when culture wants to make anything kind of acceptable, the first step is to get people to laugh at it. So I don't think it was an accident that many years ago, actually several decades ago, in sitcoms, before you saw a normal TV, in sitcoms you started seeing the stealing, the cheating, the lying, the adultery, the sexual immorality. All that appeared in sitcoms long before it was normalized in television. Why? Because if you can get people to laugh at something, it lowers their resistance. Well, sin is not a laughing matter. Look what it did to Jesus. So I would say, even though we stumble in many ways, even though we know we're going to fall short, we talk about it here all the time, we are imperfect people, I get that. But we should be striving for holiness. We should be striving for holiness. So first, we ought to hate sin. Second, we ought to love Christ. Man, when we think of what Jesus has done for us, it should break our hearts. It ought to cause us to say, Jesus, you deserve my wholehearted devotion. 1 John 4.10 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. People hear me on this. God has never met a person He didn't love. God loves all mankind, for God so loved the world. And 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. Our love is just an overflow of the love God has poured out on us. So we ought to hate sin, we ought to love Christ, and then finally, here's a biggie, we ought to make this message known, people. Over in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the Apostle Paul says this, the love of Christ compels us. Now the context there is sharing the good news of Jesus. And what drove Paul? The love of Christ compels us. Can you imagine an event as important as the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus just being kept a secret? I would say if somebody died for you, you would want to know that. If I had the cure for cancer and I walked around cancer wards all day long and didn't say a thing, that would be horrible. And here's the bottom line. Everybody, everybody needs to hear the message we're talking about, that Jesus loves them, that Jesus lived the perfect life they couldn't live, that Jesus died in their place, that Jesus is the only one who can forgive them and give them eternal life. And yes, if you look at the Bible, we are commanded to share the good news. That's a command. It's an instruction. But more than that, I think the love of Christ should compel us. That should be our motivation. I mean, if somebody lives and dies without knowing Christ, then for that individual, his death on the cross was a waste. And people, what better time than this time of year to invite somebody to come to church or to watch online? For whatever reason, Easter is the one time of year, the best time of year, when people outside the faith are willing to give Jesus a chance. So let me just encourage you this week. Let the love of God compel you. Reach out to a family member. Reach out to a coworker. Reach out to a friend. Say, hey, come along with me. 8 o'clock, 9.30, 11 o'clock. Who knows? Who knows? That individual may put their faith in Jesus. And if they do, they'll get transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And you'll spend an eternity with that person. How awesome would that be? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an opportunity today to ask some pretty deep why questions. 
And I thank you that your death was very complex. And I've just scratched the surface of the hundreds of passages of Scripture that speak about this. Thank you that you paid the ransom for us. You paid the price to set us free. Thank you that you were an example for us, Lord. And Father, you sacrificed your son for us out of your love. And thank you for demonstrating your love by dying on that cross. God, I thank you that through Jesus, we have the victory, that we're no longer slaves to sin, that it was finished on that cross. And I thank you so much, Jesus, that that you were our substitute, that you took our place. So God, as a result of all that we've learned today, I pray that we would recognize how damaging sin really is, that our sin nailed you to that cross. And even though you love us and your grace is sufficient for us and we stumble every day, we sin, help us not to just accept that and not try to push back against that, not try to live by your spirit and live holy lives. Help us as well to just have a deeper love for you, Jesus. This week as we come to the Good Friday service and consider all the price that you paid for us, what you suffered on the cross, that that would just compel us to love you more. And then finally, God, I pray, I pray, pray, pray that you would give us an opportunity to bring this message of hope to others so that they might be transferred as we were from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, this week, people, I just want to encourage you, pray. Pray for an opportunity. Say, God, who's somebody I know in my life that I can bring along and bring them with you next Sunday? You guys have a great Palm Sunday.